Hi, this is T. Michael Coleman, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jamalong, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. Hey, welcome back to Bluegrass Jamalong. Um, what I've got for you today is another one of the excerpts from the Doc Watson special episodes, um, and this is the interview with T. Michael Coleman. As I explained when I did the Jack Lawrence one, um, the Doc episodes, like, they were great and a lot of fun to do, but they ended up being really long. And I know not everybody has time to listen to five hours of stuff, so I'm pulling out some of the key interviews and putting them out just as separate standalone things to give more people a chance to hear them. And this is just one of the most cool bits from those episodes. Um, not only to get to have this conversation, but just in terms of the insight and, you know, understanding of Doc and his music that T. Michael has, the time he spent playing with him. I think this is just a treat to do. And yeah, I really hope if you haven't heard this, you enjoy it. Um, if you do enjoy it, do go and check out the rest of the Doc stuff, either the standalone episodes or, or almost five hours of it, because there's so much so much stuff in there from people who knew Doc, played with Doc, uh, or just love Doc, um, and they're well worth a listen. So do and go and check those out. Uh, but here comes the conversation with T. Michael Coleman. When I was in college, I was on a work-study program to help pay for my college, and there was a coffee house in the student union. So I would sometimes, you know, go help out with the sound. And one of those times being when Doc and Merle were playing at the coffee house, which was 10 miles from Deep Gap. And uh, the next time they came around, I was not scheduled to work the sound. But on that day, someone came and knocked on my dorm door and said, Doc, uh, Merle said he wanted that hippie guy to come over and run the sound for them again. <laughs> So, and what's interesting is years later, after I had played with Doc and Merle for a while, uh, he hadn't connected those two things. And I reminded really? him that was me. <laughs> but the way I started playing with them is I was in another band in, uh, in college and after college. And we sometimes opened up for Doc and Merle and we were very progressive we were playing Shady Grove with conga drums and electric guitars. You know, it was sort of like a Mumford and Sons, but back in the 70s, early 70s. Merle would hang out with us a bit because we were close in age. And when that band disbanded, uh, pretty much within a couple of weeks, I was in the hardware store in Boone, North Carolina, and Merle followed me in and he said, uh, you, would you like to come play with me and Daddy? And of course, being living in Boone near Deep Gap, they were idolized, and my answer was quicker than his sentence ended. <laughs> so I, I, they wanted me to come down to the house and play a couple of songs and see if it would be a nice fit. So I went and made the mistake uh, any Southern boy should know better than try to knock on the front door because no one in the South uses their front door because they gather things in front of the door. So Rosalie, after a bit of clattering, she opened the door and said, honey, come around the back. So I went around the back and went in, and there sat Doc Watson, and I was pretty speechless at the time. They had set up an amplifier for me. I had my bass. <laughs> uh, they decided that we would play T for Texas, 
We played T for Texas, and Doc said, he'll do. And that's the last time we practiced for 15 years. Right. That's amazing. And it's a it's a really interesting, like, it, for a figure that is so connected with sort of traditional and roots music, the idea of having a trio with an electric bass was pretty progressive in itself at that point. I think it was a banner of being progressive and convenient because the new traveling with a stand-up bass would be, you know, bothersome. Although we weren't flying, we were traveling in a Winnebago at the time. And I, Merle always had his, his eye and his ear on what was happening. And bluegrass festivals were merging with rock and roll festivals. Mm. And the sound systems at that particular time weren't the best in the world. And also with me playing electric bass, they put pickups in their guitars. They weren't relying on microphones or the, or the sound man that was sitting out front that had been there for too many days and had too many <laughs> other things influencing them. <laughs> and, and it was basically they wanted to be heard. And Merle liked the, my interaction with the way they played. And though those were the factors. And I don't know that being, being progressive was the top thing. It was many things in that, in that recipe. And do you remember sort of what the first shows you played with them were? The first show I did with him was at the Exit Inn in Nashville, Tennessee. And in the audience was Wailing Jennings and a bunch of other country music stars. And there I was a green kid from North Carolina. And I was pretty much awestruck. And I sat in the middle as a result of not ever rehearsing and Doc knew so many songs that I would look back and forth to the guitar necks so I could follow along. So that, and it made it a little difficult sometimes when they were capoed in two different positions. But that's yeah. why I sat there. And that was it from that day on, you sat in the middle? I sat in the middle, yes. Which is unusual because, because you know, the star of the show usually sits in the middle. And there were some TV shows where they would rearrange uh where we were sitting and, you know, Doc being blind, sometimes he would forget that. And he would, he would always lean over to his right to talk to me. Yet I wasn't there and I would talk from the other side and it sort of, wait a minute, you're the wrong place. Yeah. I guess you, you know, just the things that you get used to on some things you take for granted on stage when you can see everybody around you. And I think it's really interesting, the sort of the sight line to be able to see their guitars because anybody who's played, in any kind of bluegrass jam, knows that being able to see the guitar player's hands is really useful. Oh, it's very useful because it's impossible to know every song. And Doc and Merle, they were really good about telegraphing where it was going. Uh, the only really difficult thing that, uh, that served me well in my music career was Doc being a very, you know, a mountain player first. And sometimes they are, and uh, a lover of Delta Blues, he would just sometimes skip a beat. Hmm. Okay, let's go to the four chord. Uh, yet you hadn't counted the four yet. Maybe it was three and a half. But somehow he would telegraph that move, which uh, I was able to follow in later years. And being from a similar sort of area to them, did did you sort of, I guess the, the repertoire of material that they played was huge. 
But I guess if you grew up in that area and knew a lot of that music anyway, it probably gave you a, a fair head start. No. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I was a rock and I was a rock and roll guy. Okay. I was a I was a Beatles fan from the day I heard them, and in, uh, rock and roll Led Zeppelin. That's what I listened to. Uh, I did grow up with an Uncle Woodrow that played banjo, and that you know that was in the back of my head and all that kind of music at uh, family reunions was considered, you know, homemade, made up music. And I was in a rock and roll band and I was in a rock and roll band until I went to college and, uh, uh, and discovered folk music uh, while I was in college and discovered who doc was in a music store. There was a display of albums and I asked the proprietor, who is that? And there I was 10 miles from where Doc lives. He says, that's Doc Watson. You've never heard of Doc Watson? I said, did he play with Hendrix? <laughs> I don't know who he is. So he gave me an album and I went home and listened to it. And I was shocked and amazed. And what struck me most was that I understood what they were doing rhythmically, that I could fit into that, into that slot and not, cover them up or cloud up their music. I knew I could do that. And, you know, it came to fruition later. And that's, so that's some learning curve in terms of the repertoire then, if you came at it from a different world. Uh, no, because uh, rock and roll is a good prerequisite to anything because it, uh, you know, it involves a lot of chords, a lot of rhythms. Uh, so, uh, the lucky thing for me is when I was in a band in high school, I was the guy who would buy the records and learn the songs. And that imprinted, that gave me an education of how music works theoretically. And that uh, served me well into playing with Doc and Merle because I understood what goes together. Yeah, that makes sense. You've got a good ear, then you, that's half the battle. Um, and was there anything sort of when you found yourself playing with them on stage up close? Was there anything about the playing that sort of surprised you, or you hadn't hadn't picked up from the records? Is there anything different about being sat in between them? Uh, the power of three people playing in sync. It was you know I have listened to uh, recordings you know within the last few years, and it was like a freight train. It was just it was. Rhythmically, it was like no other band I've ever played with. It's just everyone did what they needed to do and stay out of, stayed out of each other's way. But the power of that trio, I pitied any band that followed us. <laughs> it's an amazing thing when people can make acoustic music um, that, that feels, you know, like a complete rhythm section and everything's there and just that, the power of, you can generate just with picks and strings and hands when you hear the best people do it is astonishing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, um, you know, every, the syncopation and everything mixing together, it's, it's not a full blown band playing at a hundred percent. It's playing in your lane, complimenting the other players and therefore you're creating a better auditory picture that comes at you stronger because nothing is uh, psychoacoustically eliminating the other. 
Yeah, totally. That makes a huge amount of sense. And and you played with Doc like, for the next 10, 15 years. It was 15 that. Did years. you imagine when, when you first arrived, did you imagine it would go on, go on anywhere near as long as that? It didn't, it didn't really, that didn't cross my mind. I was uh, in such a humbled space and that I was sitting there playing with these guys and, you know, from place to place, realizing the respect people had for them, you know, there'd be people coming to the concerts and they would be in such awe of Doc, they would be nervous just to meet him. Yeah, it's amazing. The just and just now, obviously, you know, I've I've never seen Doc live, never met Doc, um, and from you know, a whole ocean away in a different continent. Just the the power of that music to spellbind people, and the way just carrying out the interviews for this podcast and talking to people about Doc and the the sort of the depth of feeling people have about the music, and that comes from the person. It, it is. That's exactly right. It comes from the person. There was no pretense. He was who he was. He was Arthur Watson from the mountains of North Carolina. And his blindness almost gave him an advantage over everyone because no matter where he played, he was in his, he could feel as though he were playing for his relatives or for friends. And he would get, he would really get involved in the songs, especially the really emotional songs. I can't, you know, tell you how many times he would break down in tears because a lyric would hit him so hard and so meaningfully. And Doc, and his personality came across. And I think people were shocked when they met him. That guy you saw on the stage is the same guy sitting in the dressing room. Yeah, and we've sort of, I think, as pop music has grown as an industry over the past few decades, we've reached a point where people are trying to project so much. Like, you can hear people trying to be emotional when they sing on a huge amount of pop records. And so when you hear a record from somebody who is just being themselves and just singing, whether that's Doc Watson or Hank Williams or whoever, right. it's just like... Like somebody's opened the curtains and let the sun in. It's just so direct and so like unaffected. It's right. a beautiful yeah, thing. It, it's basically the ability to open a vein and bleed. It's what you're doing. You're, you're, you're. Um, you know when when he would sing song, especially when members of his family would die and when Merle died. Uh, there's certain just lines in the song, almost you know. It would bring about tears and he was visualizing in his head, you know, his loved one. And, that, you know, songs that were written back in the mountains were written to express feelings, to communicate. And he he kept doing that throughout his career. He was communicating more than entertaining. Yeah, that's a lovely way of putting it, um, because anybody, any form of art is essentially an attempt to communicate with people. Yes. Um, it's it's taking a bit of what it's like to be you as a human and trying to connect that with other people and express it in some form. Without um, trying. Yeah. Well, and some people do try, and it's, <laughs> the trying can put you off. But <laughs> it's... And I was really curious because you obviously played with Doc again in the last couple of years. Um, and was anything anything particularly different at that point? Was it still pretty much the same sort of feeling? Or did he sort of change as a musician in any way? 
well, he, 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 he was still Doc, and he was still playing well, but he was, uh, you could tell he was getting older, and that part changed. But the reason he was still out, out there at that age is because he loved playing in front of an audience. And I think you see that just watching things that were recorded fairly late on, like the Three Pickers concert, for example, there's just such a power there still, and such a, a and you, to see the joy other people get from the music was one of the first things. You know, I got into Doc Watson relatively late in my life, but to see the effect the music had on other people is almost as appealing as the effect of the music itself. It's part of the. It's just. It's something that. Um, you can't not notice. Um, absolutely, he he through his expression of music and his his background. He uh, when he first went to New York during what uh, Doc and I would laugh about and call the folk scare of the sixties. When, when you were have when you were talking about trying too hard, you would have people on stage singing in four part unison. Is what we used to say. <laughs> And so when Doc and Bill Monroe and those guys started going up to New York, all these people would gather and they go, now that there's the real thing. That's what we're trying to hear. You know, Maria Moldar, Bob Dylan, Jose Feliciano, uh, you know, the whoever was in New York, they would always flock to see Doc or Bill Monroe or any of the real guys. And it's, it's fascinating that, um, that whole period, you know, the, just how much um, overly produced, overly sort of, I think Brian Sutton described it as homogenized, but just the you know, folk music with all the all the edges taken off it that was sort of put out Loun- the pop Loun- audience. Yeah, lounge folk. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, and it's when you. That's when the that's when the uh, you know you know the the A and R people and the music people we need to you know round out the corners to appeal to more people, but they're they're taking away the things that I think would bring in more people. It's 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 amazing how Doc would pull in rock and roll people and uh, folk people. It's uh, because they identified with. It wasn't so much the genre of music, it was the stories behind the music and how he got there and uh, his uh, folksiness from the stage without even trying. And sometimes when you take the edges off something to try and sell it to a bigger crowd, you you actually remove what the thing is completely. It's the edges that make it what it is sometimes. That's absolutely true. and. You know, young people will always come back to the edges. But, you know, that's what happens. Look at how many people have flocked to Billy Strings, how many people have flocked to uh, to Bluegrass Music and, you know, the Mufford and, Mufford and Sons. They took advantage of that, but not on purpose, I don't think. But, you know, and the Avett Brothers, they have sort of captured a whole audience that 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 wants genuine music. Yeah, and it seems to be something that will keep keep on coming around every few years. There's a, a something else that puts it back in the spotlight, and you know people just want want those sounds in their ears, and they want something that feels like it's from the heart. You know, there there are about three directional signposts that did that. 
Will the Circle Be Unbroken album by the Dirt Band. That brought in a lot. And that about, that's about the time that I started playing with Doc and Merle. Merle had realized these guys appeal to younger people. We need that audience. We need to get up there and we need to have that long haired guy sitting on stage with us. <laughs> so they, you know, they, number one, he can identify with them. And plus he knows how to play. Then the second would be probably, uh, Oh brother, where art thou that movie and Alison yeah. Krauss and that, that music and everyone mistaking that George Clooney sang that song when it was Dan Kaminsky. And then now it's Billy and the Avid brothers. They're the ones that are packing the stadiums. And, and he always makes a point to say, this is where I got it from. This man is where I got it from. Yeah, I love that. He, um, he doesn't just play the songs because he loves them. He plays the songs and tells you where they came from so you can go and find them too. It's, you know, and it's, there's yep. something very cool about the fact that, you know, Billy has invited you guys to do the Docker 100 shows with him and mm -hmm. it's sort of, brings that whole thing full circle and it there's something about just keeping that music alive by playing it and loving it and putting it in front of people so there's something lovely right. about the fact that he's invited you to to do that show as part of his tour yeah well billy and i have been been in touch you know for a couple of years through the pandemic uh, i did a pod, his podcast with him and uh he told me a story he had never seen doc before and he and his mother and his father drove 15 16 hours to come see us play when we were playing with david holt near the end and billy said he and his family were sitting there in tears the entire time because they had never seen doc before and a funny aside uh david holt and i went into a hamburger place to get a hamburger before the show and billy said he and his family were sitting there and they were, he was too nervous to come up and say hello to me. Wow. I mean, yeah, and he, no way would he imagined at that point that at this time he'd be about to share a stage with you all, sort of celebrating Doc's 100th birthday. It's going, it's going to be very special. I, I think uh, I'm touched by his, uh, his loyalty, and uh, I think he's going to be touched when we get up there and play with him the first time. Yeah, and that that night you've got Brian Sutton and Molly Tuttle, and but there's also it's a whole series of shows you guys are doing as well. It's not just the one show with Billy. You've got a whole set of dates for that as well. And it sounds I talked to Jack Hinchelwood recently about the shows and just the the storytelling and celebration element of it. As much as the music sounds like it's going to be special, it it is. And uh, you know the trouble is trying to well, there are stories you can tell and those you can't. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, you don't want to be repetitive and tell the same story every time. You know, you want something to be new. So uh, as with the doc shows, ja I know Jack Lawrence and I, we're pretty much, you know, off the cuff. What what memory springs up that we want to share about doc? And you get some some memories shared from the audience as well, by the sound of it. Yes, we do. I think that comes... Um, when Ted Olson does his uh, little master class at the beginning, I think a lot of people share that. And I have this uh, this group called Picket Sun, which is um, during the pandemic. My son said, "Well, why don't you start, you know, a little group and uh, to uh, further the memory of Doc and Merle and 
on that, there are a lot of people that share their experiences with Doc and when they've met him. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's quite humbling to, you know, be here in my life and being considered uh, Doc's bass player, his musician. It's uh, something I'm very proud of. Yeah, and it's something that I think means a lot to a lot of people and to be able to share those memories with you must be incredibly special to a lot of people. I, I think it is. I think it is. And I, I love that there have been a, a lot of families that have named their little girl Sadie after my song. <laughs> and you have um, you have a recent record out as well, don't you, called Sitting in the Middle, which is also a, a sort of musical tribute. It is. I, I, it started as a result of this Picket Sun group, and I was home. I was not going anywhere during the pandemic because it was very scary. And I just sat down and started recording songs that I had played with Doc. And uh, I thought, well, I'll just put this on a CD. And, my, of course, my son says, no one buys CDs anymore. What are you doing? <laughs> so I did it anyway. And it was, it was a labor of love, to say the least. It made me realize how great his song selection was. Yeah, that, and that's an interesting thing because, the you know, you, people talk about the guitar playing and people talk about the singing and people talk about banjo playing and people talk about all sorts. But the choice of material, um, I, I'm doing a similar episode to celebrate 40 years of Tony Rice's Church Street Blues record. Mm -hmm. I'm sort of interviewing a lot of people for that as well. And it's another one where just song selection is a big part of it. And that, you know, Doc did all those the old ballads and the fiddle tunes, but he also did some pop songs and he also did things like Tennessee stud. And he also did some bits of swing and like whatever grabbed his ear was fair game. And, I think and the dockability, big... the dockability yeah. record, which boy, that was like pulling teeth to get him to do that. <laughs> well, not, not really. He loved that music and he would always play those songs because he played them when he was supporting his family and a little rockabilly band. It, it was just hard to get him to, let me call it Dockabilly. He did not want that at all. But finally, he acquiesced and let me call it that, which is a perfect name. I mean, it's too good to let go, right? <laughs> exactly. You got Dwayne Eddy playing on the records. You got Marty Stewart, uh, Junior, Junior Brown. It was a lot. We did that in two days. Wow. All that that, pretty, much, two days. Pretty, much, pretty much all the records we ever recorded were done in one or two days. But not a lot of overdubbing. You know, we would just count to four and play. So no rehearsals uh, for the gigs, no rehearsals for recording. <laughs> Turn up, count in, off you go. No, it's, you know, it's about listening. You know, and I always, when I was at the records that I produced, I always hired the people who knew Doc and he would invite them on stage to play, like Jerry Douglas and Sam Bush and Stuart Duncan. You know, and Alan O'Brien, they knew Doc, so they knew what to do and they knew to listen. And, that, that you know, that's 90% of playing music is to listen. And the other that's... half, as Yogi Berra would say. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that sort of loops us back around to sort of where we started this bit and just the idea that um, Doc and Mill turned up and you weren't there sound engineering that day and they... You'll go and get that guy. He knows what he's doing. He was, you know, he knows how to how to listen. I guess, and I guess, I guess that was the catalyst of it. That uh, that even though it was probably embedded in the back of Merle's brain, that uh, 
you know, this guy knows what to listen for, even though he didn't make the connection between musician and old hippie in the back or young That's hippie so in the back. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's all really, really cool stuff. Um, have you, are there any particular sort of, you know, I mean, out of all those years, it'd be tricky, but if there are any particular memories or any particular thoughts you've got that you'd like to share any aspects of doc that you'd, you know, you'd like people to think more about. Um, uh, he was really uncomfortable with uh, people idolizing him. He, uh, he didn't know how to respond, you know, for instance, uh, or, and he treated no one differently. He thought he himself was no better than anyone else, and no one else was better than he. Uh, I remember at the bottom line in New York one time, John Denver came to the door, and it knocked on the dressing room, and I came out and he says, Michael, can I meet Doc? And I said, I'll go check. So I'll go inside and say, Doc, John Denver's out here, and he wants to say hello. And he says, well, tell him just to wait. I'm going to finish my hamburger. <laughs> or, you know, we were, we'd be playing somewhere at a concert in Los Angeles, and you look on the side of the stage, and there would be Maria Moldar and Linda Ronstadt and Bonnie Raitt just, you know, uh, coming to play homage, pay homage to Doc. Yet not was- brave enough to come say hello. Funny, isn't it? I, one of the interviews that I did for this, and I think it was probably with Jack um, Hinchelwood, saying that Doc's manager had phoned in to tell him he won a Grammy for the first time, and he sort of said, "Yeah, can you call back later? I'm in the middle of watching Love Boat." That's that's true. <laughs> that, I mean, he also he was nominated, and they wanted to give him a, a Kennedy Center honor, and he uh, he said, "I don't need that. <laughs> I don't want to do that." Uh, you know, you remember the movie Cold Mountain? Yeah. With Okay. The director called me. He wanted to open the movie with Doc Watson sitting in a cabin playing banjo, and he was going to push out into the mountains of North Carolina, and Doc says, nah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> it just kind of, you know, it wasn't, he just, he just didn't need it. He would rather sit home and, uh, you know, eat Rosalie's cooking. And if you're that grounded in what matters to you and what doesn't, and you put that into your music, it's sort of no wonder that people respond to it. You know, he always said uh, his music was what he did for a living. It was not who he was. Because when he was home, he was he was still Doc, but he wasn't that musician Doc. You know, because you have to have a certain mindset to be able to go out there and, and play uh, not being affected though, but uh, yeah, he was more the, he was more Arthur than he was Doc Watson at home because Rosalie's there going Arthur, go do this, Arthur, go do that. And maybe that's maybe that is a useful thing to be able to have a slightly public version of your persona that you know when he's on stage he's Doc and when he's at home he isn't. Must be a help. No, he's. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it helped keep him grounded, and uh, he was a pretty grounded individual. And there was uh, there's there was nothing he would not try or do. For instance, in the Winnebago one time, one of the guys they were driving and they ran into a walkway of a hotel and knocked a huge hole in the Winnebago. So Doc said, "Michael, I think I can fix that. Why don't you pull the Winnebago up here to the second floor landing?" I'll climb over the railing on top of the Winnebago. He did that. He patched it with duct tape and then climbed back over. And that patch was 
on there the day we sold it five years later. Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.